Before we sit down, let's just quiet our hearts for a second. That peace that we sense, this sweetness in the air, this is the Lord. This is the Lord. So let's quiet our hearts for a minute. You may be seated. We will continue our worship with the reading of God's Word. Now that our hearts are softer and our ears a little more open, our first reading is from the prophet Haggai. Haggai, whose Hebrew name means festivals, celebrations, must have been a happy boy. Probably was born on one of the high holidays of Israel. And he prophesied to the nation of Israel after they are back from exile in Babylon and they are to rebuild the ancient ruins, to restore the temple. But they're busy about their personal lives. Everybody minds their own bizwiz. And the house of the Lord lays in repair. It's been 16 years since their return. So God raises up Haggai to light up the fire. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, that's the political leadership, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, that's the clergy, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? It's been a long time since the temple was destroyed. Probably none of them saw it with their own eyes. But who among you is asking them? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Yehoshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Our second reading is from 2 Thessalonians, verses 1 through 17. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily and unsettled 
or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overflow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement, and good hope, encourage your hearts, and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel portion is from the gospel according to Luke in chapter 20. And uh, we will honor a tradition which honors Jesus. Please stand as we hear our Messiah teach us the good news brothers and sisters, according to Luke. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, 
At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's begin by praying. Father, we um, are your children, the sheep of your pasture. Lord, we pray that um, you would encourage us, that you would teach us, that you would bring us correction where necessary. And Lord, we ask that uh, you will enable all of us to see in a deeper way, Lord, the calling that you've given each one of us so that we do not take these things, we do not take that calling in a flippant or even careless manner. We do ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to start um, in a different way. I'd like to tell or to give a little sketch about some recent church history. And um, like to talk about the <clears throat> evangelical revival that took place uh, in Britain. That um, renewal of religious life, uh, that rekindling of faith on a nationwide basis started probably in the 1750s. It began after a long era of apostasy maybe of a hundred years, of irreligion, of, uh, you might say, large-scale public disinterest in uh, spiritual things or in faith. Maybe it was a reaction to um, the excesses of Puritanism. But the Lord used um, George Whitfield and uh, Charles Wesley and they became his partners uh, in bringing renewal and revival to Britain. And uh, there were stirrings uh, in other countries as well, Holland, Germany, uh, etc. Toward the end of the 18th century, uh, the revival intensified and uh, many aristocrats wealthy men and women 
also came to faith. And um, together, uh, this renewal movement, which took place largely in the Anglican Church, but not totally, this renewal movement brought incredible fruit to Britain and to the world. In the year 1800, the world was hardly Christian, or Christianity was not a universal religion. A hundred years later, it was. It was thanks to voluntary missionary societies in Britain, Holland, later Germany, later the United States, that would bring the gospel to virtually every corner in the world. And further, these evangelicals, yes, brought a lot of pressure to bear on the British political system. And there were numerous changes uh, in, British, uh, in British life, where ch- uh, little boys did not have to work 12 hours a day as chimney sweeps, or there was uh, a provision made for those who were mentally ill, prison reform, the end of slavery, William Wilberforce, who has an association with this church, and more. And as we went into the 19th century, um, this revival continued to bring life to so many corners of the world. And then something happened. And that something was, there became an obsession with two things. Thing number one, these evangelicals began to get very, very feisty. And they began to fight with other Christians over things that were not very important. And they spent a huge amount of time and energy battling with Christians, uh, other Christians who thought, maybe it's a good idea to put candles on the altar. Or maybe our, uh, their view of communion is not the same as our view of communion or their view of ordination. And secondly, they started to get really uh, intensely interested in eschatology and in the second coming. And there were charts and graphs and prediction after prediction. Who was going to be the Antichrist? Was it going to be Napoleon III? Or is it the Pope? Or is it the Turkish Sultan? And uh, there were the charts and the graphs the expectations, yes, the prophecies. And what did this do to this incredible life-giving, life-changing movement? It sucked all the energy out of the movement because they began to focus on minors or things that weren't really important. And secondly, they lost a huge amount of credibility with the British public and with uh, not only Britain, but in other places around the world, because of the es- their eschatology made on the, their, uh, you might say, the expectations or the predictions that they made, tried to make, uh, made them um, look ridiculous. Uh, in fact, the eschatology was uh, used to scare generations of children and young people. 
And of course, when all these predictions or expectations don't come true, then what happens to the, uh, the gospel? It's brought into disrepute. And God's name, you might say, is desecrated by the silliness of uh, so many Christians. Now I tell you, I say all that because I think it's relevant to our second reading. And the second reading was the, the uh, chapter from 2 Thessalonians, which concerns, the, uh, in, which concerns eschatology, but I'd like to suggest that it, it is not merely about things that will happen in the future, but it's a lesson for us today and something that we need to, to watch uh, or listen to, I might say, very, very carefully. Because on one hand, here you have a group of people, um, the church at Thessalonica, a church that Paul has a, an incredible affection for, a church that he's grateful, uh, he has a lot of gratitude for the way that they withstood uh, uh, persecution. I mean, they in chapter one of First Thessalonians, Paul says, "You've turned from idols to serve the serve the living God and to await the second coming of Jesus." And of course, whenever you switch, when you switch from one allegiance to another allegiance, right? If you if you decide, I'm going to reject the gods of my age or the gods of my culture, or the gods of my family, and I'm going to turn to the God of Israel, the God who makes heaven and earth, oh my goodness, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be misunderstanding, there's going to be persecution, and more. And of course, this is what happens to this uh, very beloved community. Uh, there's a huge amount of misunderstanding. But the second issue is that there's a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion on behalf of the, uh, in the community uh, related to those things, uh, um, those es that eschatology. What's going to happen at the end of the world? What's, what does the resurrection of the dead look like? The second coming of Jesus and so on. And Paul, of course, has to write a second letter because the confusion continues um, even though he tries to correct it in 1 Thessalonians. So 2 Thessalonians is a continuation. And in the second chapter, as we just read, Paul has to say, of course the end hasn't come. You may be uh, confused in uh, one way uh, or another. You may certainly you are living in, a, uh, in deception, and this deception in the, in the case of the, uh, this particular church leads to a passivity, uh, but we are not in the end times. And uh, what will characterize the end times, or what will characterize the last day, is that there's going to be a great falling away, a great apostasy, and there will be a uh, there will be a, the coming, right, of a man of lawlessness, or in some trans, some early uh, textual variants, a man of sin, which we of course equate with the Antichrist. But 
this uh, chapter has given rise as a, um, not surprisingly, to endless, endless speculation. Yes, who is this man of sin? Well, I can tell you there's a long history of trying to identify the guy. And uh, to date, there's been a 100% failure rate. <laughs> yeah, every person, <clears throat> every suggestion, who knows? Who is this guy? Yes, it's always the Pope. It's always, it used to be Henry Kissinger, used to be Hitler, used to be Mao Zedong, maybe it was John Lennon, I don't know. Um, every generation, you know, they see someone and they get kind of suspicious, and uh, then they say, maybe, just maybe, this, this is the Antichrist. And what does it mean that he's going to sit in the temple of God? That's also really unclear, because what temple are we talking about? Are we talking about the temple of God as a community? Are we talking about the literal temple of God, the one that used to uh, be in existence or be behind uh, Christ Church? Are we talking about something that's just simply metaphorical? You know, it's hard to say. Um, how long is this guy going to rule? Or how long is, the, how long is his influence going to last? There's just 2,000 years of speculation. And these 2,000 years of speculation, uh, for the most part, has done nothing but to bring us shame and embarrassment. And so I think it's time that we stop speculating and we stop gravitating to read the, uh, you know, the latest book about how the, the, you know, the, end, the harvest at the end of days is coming or how the man of uh, sin will be ushered in, you know, or how this, uh, you know, Russia is going to somehow, uh, with Turkey, invade Israel or invade the Middle East over and over and over again. All these predictions and speculations have hurt us as a community, made us look very foolish, and hurt the credibility of the gospel. We just need to say, I don't know. And since I'm standing here in Jerusalem and I'm standing a few hundred meters from, as the crow flies, from the Temple Mount, let me just say one word uh, of caution and one word of warning about the um, speculation, titillation, excitement that goes along for, uh, with rebuilding the temple, at least for many people. Now, let's say that we accept the literal interpretation, which by the way, it's a plausible possibility that uh, when Paul mentions the temple of God, he is talking about the temple that uh, stood and, uh, in his day. It was when he wrote the, the book of, uh, he wrote to the church at uh, Thessalonica, that temple was still standing. 
So let, maybe this is what he means. He's talking about such a... Why is it that you have so many Christians who are somehow excited about all this? Somehow they find it sensational. Somehow follow every end, all, all the ins and outs on, uh, or every development. And uh, many go further. They give money. Yes, they show, they show practical support and political support. And recently, at least apparently, one Christian farmer in the United States sent five red heifers. Now, whatever your interpretation might be, has it ever occurred to any of us that actually the man of sin or the Antichrist sits in that place and, pe and people are aiding and abetting a man of lawlessness? What business, of, uh, what business of it is ours as believers to be doing such a thing? The man, this man of lawlessness is empowered by Satan. So here we, you might say that uh, uh, those Christians who are advocating or pushing for or helping, yes, to rebuild this temple or to reestablish some kind of temple worship, they're on the wrong team. They're on the wrong side. Now, most of you are saying, well, I don't believe. Yes, most of us don't probably go that far, but we, we know people who do, and we kind of wink at them or tolerate them for these activities. But I think it's extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous. So with all this, un, uh, with all this unknown, yes, what is it that I think that we need to take out of out of the chapter. Well, it's not just that the man of lawless, the man of sin or the, the, the lawless one is going to come, and there's no question, okay, he will come. It's that he is already here. And um, like to, to that, uh, it says, Paul says, don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And by the way, Paul probably explained orally to the church in uh, Thessalonica. He probably gave an explanation. Maybe what did he mean by the temple of God? What did he mean about this man setting himself up as God? But of course, these things aren't revealed to us here. Um, then Paul goes on to say, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Now again, we don't know who, the, who is this restraining force, and there are many, many possibilities. But I don't think we should speculate and spend a lot of time on trying to figure that out. What I think that we have to deal with and deal with urgently is that that spirit of lawlessness, right, is with us at the moment. Yes, and that spirit of lawlessness is bringing to our communities um, an incredible... Um, 
an incredible amount of damage. And perhaps the lawlessness began with Adam, but um, the, um, the one who's bringing chaos or the one who is undermining authority, the authority of God, or undermining the place of the scripture, bringing the, ch uh, the, the church, uh, the authority of the church to, to teach and preach uh, the scripture, bringing this into disrepute as Satan himself. And as a result, especially in the church, yes, what do we have? We have at the moment a huge amount of panic, a huge amount of fear, a lack of joy, yes, because there is a certain almost hysteria in many places uh, about the future. And our inability, right, or to, ha to have the proper perspective and even the proper response to uh, such lawlessness. And that lawlessness includes things like um, maybe the sexual revolution, yes. Uh, and again, it brings chaos and it brings destruction. Well, what about the, our, um, the pandemic of narcissism that we have in our society? Now, human beings have always been narcissistic, but now it's aided and abetted by, uh, by technology. Or you might say the lawlessness of a kind of a secular humanism that says, hey, I'm God, and I can decide for myself what's right or wrong. Um, and I can flourish and do well in life without any reference. Or you might, <coughs> might say any connection to God or the rebellion that you find in many political movements, and maybe even the rebellion to some extent you found in the recent pandemic. Yes, the same spirit is stirring up anger and hatred and division and tribalism. And sometimes we go along with it. And two things are, I think are worth observing. Many people will, might, might think to themselves, it's a problem of the liberals. It's about the progressives. But I, can, I want to reassure you, right, that narcissism or rebellion or kind of a, a postmodern view of truth where all truth is relative or there is no, there's not such thing as a truth can equally be, equally be at home amongst conservatives as much as it can with liberals. Yeah. In fact, you know, sometimes, sometimes the, there's so much chaos and it, um, it brings us a lot of, you might say, uh, uh, psychological, spiritual confusion. So we say what we need is some kind of law and order and we find a strong person who's gonna come and restore things for us. And what's the first thing, more often than not, that this strong person ends up doing? Breaking the law. 
and saying, well, there's one law for me and my family, and there's one law for you. And that, too, is lawlessness. Yes, that, too, is lawlessness. And then, of course, it leads to all these, cons- these worldviews of conspiracies. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it for a moment, but those who have a very, very strong conspiratorial worldview, um, it's not very biblical, right? Because somehow God's no longer in charge of the world. It's the bankers of Wall Street, or it's the Jews, um, or it's uh, the oil companies. It's the global elite. They're in charge. Instead of having the biblical view says, well, God is still in control of history, right? There might be a spiritual warfare. There might be warfare between uh, good and evil, between God and, and the satanic. But no, no, it's all, it all becomes about uh, certain human beings um, uh, doing certain things. And um, it's very interesting that all of this kind of, cons- all of this, the, the, the conspiracy theories grow and continue get, to get stronger the more the world gets, sec- the more secular the world becomes. Yes? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And by the way, even, even if you had the global elites or the oil companies and they wanted to control the world, nobody can control the world. You know, nobody can control events. And uh, certainly things are a lot more complicated uh, and out of the control of, of human beings. Ultimately, they're still in God's control. And by the way, what does that mean? Does it mean that somehow what, that if God's in control of history, that um, he um, uh, somehow blesses or allows these bad things to happen? Like to just pick up something that should uh, warn us and sober us, and that is is that the Lord said that in this in our chapter, um, it is not that God allows a, that it's not that God is the author of a of a lie, or that God is the author of evil. Um, and says it te- instead. We are told that those who are um, says that those who are perish, right? Um, it says it says the um, Satan displays all kinds of counterfeit signs and wonders, and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends a powerful delusion that they may believe a lie and that they will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in in wickedness, right? It's not that this is a question of free will versus predestination. The question is very simple. Those who love a lie are those who refuse, right, to turn to God God very often gives them, you might say, the desires of their heart. He gives them what they want. And in the end, it's sin that ends up, it's their sin that ends up 
destroying them. Maybe you remember in Romans 1, chapter 1, when Paul talks about idolatry, and there's always a close association with idolatry and sexual immorality. Like, um, Paul reminds us that God hands the idolaters or gives idolaters to be enslaved by their sexual passions. The same goes, maybe Paul uh, understands this from the, um, from the Hebrew Bible, because in Psalm 81, you also have the verse that says um, something similar. It says, but my people, Psalm 81, verse 11, but my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. Yes. And so what, how is it that we resist, right, this spirit of deception, this spirit of confusion, the lawlessness that we have, you know, in, uh, in, in perhaps even in the very air that we breathe, right? The lawlessness and confusion that brings, in some cases, passivity. Oh, I don't know what to do. I'm so overwhelmed by this world or the, this lawlessness uh, that robs us of our joy and our witness, our, or something that's going to bring, kind of bring a panic and cause us to make the wrong kind of decision for ourselves or for our families or, or even for the, the nations in which we live. Well, I think Paul said it in the, in the last verse that I read. Right? We have to be able, we have to have a commitment to love the truth. Right? We have to, first of all, we have to believe there is a truth. And we have to reject the postmodern notion, yes, that there are many truths and no one single, one single truth. And secondly, we also have to reject the notion that uh, me, myself, and I uh, alone can figure out uh, figure out the truth. It is surely the Christian message. Yes, the Christian message is about our truth. It's about the experience that we've had as believers for the last 2,000 years. As people will say, well, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth and you've had your experience. We need to reject that. It's not about my truth and my, simply my revelation. It's about our truth. It's about millions and millions of people over 2,000 years who've encountered the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who's transformed and changed uh, lives uh, in small ways or even in the most dramatic ways. Yeah, that's the relativity of our age. We have to say no to it. And secondly, you know, we, um, when it comes to this understanding, uh, when it comes to this understanding of truth, you know, we always come back to the verse. I mean, it, I think it pops into the minds of many of us. You know, the truth shall set you free. And you know that, John eight thirty two. But quote the whole verse to me. Can you? 
How does the verse go? How does the saying go? You shall, if you keep on being my disciple, if you keep on following me, if you keep on being my apprentice, if you keep on modeling yourself after me, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yes, it's not like, oh, I'll know the truth. It's something intellectual, right? It's some uh, beautiful theological system or some interesting trivia or some Bible facts or, no. Knowing the truth, yes, is actually connected to knowing a person and being obedient to that person. Actually, to love the truth means that we're not just gonna get our doctrine right, okay? We're not uh, gonna get all our, uh, we get the, the 39 articles correct or, or the catechism of the Catholic Church and to, to memorize that. No, loving the truth, which is gonna prevent, prevent us from being deceived or led into lawlessness, Loving the truth means we're committed to the truth, and it means that we are uh, committed to the extent that we're willing to do the truth. And the New Testament understands, yes, not just the, the truth in, in the abstract. It's what's important often in the New Testament is that we practice the truth or that we do the truth. And so, Whoever, John 3, 21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Whoever lives by the truth, truth comes into the light. Or John, 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay. Um, Jesus says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yes. So how do we, first of all, loving the truth? Yeah, it's not, again, it's not just about our doctrine, which, by the way, is important that we are not, uh, we don't subject ourselves to bad teaching, but what's, it's, what's important, right, is that we're willing to look to Jesus, right, to be that reference point for truth, and we're willing to be his disciple, to follow him, to obey him, Right, and to put uh, that into practice. So, loving the truth, right? Loving the truth. And uh, you can, we can have all the right doctrine. We can have all the right doctrine. We can do miracles. You may want to recall the verse in the Sermon on the Mount when people come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name and we cast out demons in your name, etc., etc." And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. So having all the right doctrine uh, and not putting it into practice certainly disqualifies us as being, I think, as being a lover of the truth. I think the other thing um, that is important, there always could be three things, but we'll stop it. At, let's look at the last <coughs> part of the chapter. It's not just loving the truth, but how is it that we're not going to panic and to become, you might say, hysterical when the political situation 
or the culture doesn't go uh, the way that we expect. And uh, again, Paul's going to address this uh, with these verses. He says, I want to always thank God for you brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through the belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord. Not that we'll be panicked or hysterical um, or angry, right? Looking for enemies everywhere or for political parties or political ideologies to hate. Yes, know that we will be sure of our calling. And what is our calling? Our calling isn't just to go to heaven. We're not here in some kind of a holding pattern, you know, uh, trying to fight off the evil and the lawlessness. And by the way, while Paul tells us to stand firm and that there is, there is a spirit of lawlessness in the world that uh, is very deceptive, at the same time, right, the kingdom of heaven is growing. That latter temple is going to be more glorious than the former temple. Indeed, God is at work amidst, uh, in, in, the midst of this, uh, in the midst of this evil. And it is um, uh, his intention or his hope that we share, um, that we share his, that we share his glory. And this, the calling, yeah, in, um, always in Thessalonians, there's the calling that, uh, that uh, we have as believers, right? It's this calling to share um, in God's richness or in God's glory, but there's a catch. And here's the catch. The catch is that um, it includes, you might say, the condition of sanctification, right? It includes, the, it includes and here, I, let me read a few examples that Paul deals with over and over again. 1 Corinthians 2.12, right? He says, um, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging and comfort, comforting you and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. 4-7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. 
And dear brothers and sisters, don't think this is only about the coming of the Lord, the Antichrist, the rapture, the building of the temple. All of us, sooner or later, some of us sooner rather than later, but all of us will be soon standing in front of the Lord. And we will have to give an account to ourselves, right? The Lord is coming to all of us, or we're going to him to be gathered to him. Our lives are like vapors. Um, and so uh, these verses would be relevant in an eschatological sense, but also as uh, each of us rapidly, yes, come to the end, uh, come to the end of, of our lives. And finally, Second, Th- Second Thessalonians 1.11, which says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this, yes, purification, holiness, or, or a desire to want to share in his glory, yes, brings us transformation and brings us closer to the Lord. And I think that enables us to see the current situation in which we live from his perspective, yes, so that we can maintain joy and not just maintain joy so that uh, we can, uh, we don't have to live in fear or we don't have to live in some kind of apathy, thinking things might get better, but that we, as again, as it is written for us, that um, I closed it too early, that we will be encouraged, yes, and strengthened in every good word and every good deed, right? That we will live and walk in those things that the Lord has prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world. So Father, we just pray that um, each of us will be able to discern the spirit of lawlessness, that uh, we will be able to resist the rebellion uh, of the enemy, that uh, we will not be caught up in fear or panic, or that we will look for solutions, Lord, that will be um, only temporary and ones that are not eternal. May we always be reminded that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We pray that uh, we'll further be reminded that ultimately the battle is yours. And we ask that we, as your children, in this present wicked age, Lord, will be uh, shining lights uh, and salt in the society in which we live. And we do ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.